please be seated. And let us pray. Oh God, your word speaks. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It shows us where we stand and the way that you call us to go. By the power of your Holy Spirit, illumine this word read and proclaimed, that we might hear with joy what you say to us this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our scripture this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to the church today. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all of Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there, ahead of them, went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and they paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One year at Christmas, my mom gave my dad a telescope, one of those really sophisticated, expensive ones. Every Advent, she would hem and haw, aggravating over what to get this impossible person for Christmas. We all have someone like that, right? The ones whose tastes are difficult to discern. The one who just goes out and buys himself whatever he needs so there's nothing left to get at the end of the year. The one who says he doesn't really like things anyways. So one year, she pulled out all of the stops, a telescope, something he didn't even know he wanted, much less needed. This wasn't so much a thing as a new experience, 
a new hobby, perhaps, a skill to acquire. And in retrospect, I think it was mostly her way of coaxing both of us to spend less time checking things off of our mental to-do lists and more time simply looking up. Later that year, my family was vacationing with our friends at their cottage on Lake Michigan. And one evening, as we roasted marshmallows in the fire and huddled beneath quilted, insulated blankets, I overheard a conversation between my mom and her friend, Jan. Jan was concerned because recently, my peer and her 12-year-old son, Joey, had announced rather defiantly that he didn't believe in God anymore. I expected my reverend mother to meet her friend's concern with equal concern, but instead she sort of hmmed and responded rather non-anxiously, sharing that in her experience, a lot of preteens go through a non-believing stage. It's a season of questioning of testing boundaries and experimenting with different theories. I wouldn't worry about it too much, she said. Keep listening, keep taking him to church, keep engaging the questions. Years later, I would read Marilyn Robinson's words that nothing true can be said about God from a posture of defense. And I think that was the spirit of the thing she was trying to convey. It's one of those conversations that is seared in my memory because overhearing it was the first time I had even considered that one could question the existence of God. And hearing that this was not only possible, but also apparently part of the natural course in childhood development, I found myself staring up at a piece of cloud-free sky and concentrating very hard. I tried to conceive of this world where there is no God. It didn't take very long to discover that stargazing is not the most useful tool when trying to convince oneself of God's non-existence. Because in that moment, as an 11-year-old who didn't carry a lifetime's worth of cynicism or experiences that would provoke doubt, I could not stare up at that twinkling, massive dome and not believe in something beyond. It was an early experience, an innocent one, that I still tap into on days when that cynicism does creep in. And when the night sky or the word revealed in scripture or the story told by a dear friend isn't enough in any given moment to evoke faith in myself or in somebody I'm sitting with, it's my mother's graciousness and the generosity of space that she gave to seekers that I lift to my remembrance. It's her trust that we don't do the revealing. God is the one who speaks, meeting us in the particularity of our stories, our history, 
and our ability to receive grace at any given time. And God continues to speak, even if and when we stop listening. Where is this child who has been born king of the Jews? I have a lot of questions about this story. First, who are these magi, these wise men, exactly? And furthermore, why do these foreigners even care about this royal child born to the Jews, a people to whom they have scant connection? Why does Herod respond so swiftly and so egregiously to the simple possibility of a future challenger to his throne? And why does Jerusalem rally so quickly behind him? There are a lot of places that one could enter here. Some interpretations focus on the gifts that the Magi bring, the gold and frankincense and myrrh, and the way that those gifts communicate who Jesus is and what he will do. Gold befits a king, frankincense a deity, myrrh a prophet who would need to be prepared to die. Some interpretations focus on the uniqueness of the Magi and the art of astrology in the ancient world, part science, part magic, and try to understand what exactly those men were looking at when they followed a star to where Jesus lay. Some interpretations focus on King Herod's arrogance and the unspeakable violence that he releases on the families. As with many of the stories that form our canon within the canon, the spirit of this one comes most alive when we consider the picture as a whole. Like an impressionist painting, if you will, all disconcerted and indecipherable up close, capturing the world in all of its complexity and constant movement, it becomes a clear picture and often a thing of great beauty only when we back up a bit. When we do that here, it's the grand arc of the narrative rather than those details that move us. It's the action of the magi, those verbs that move the story from beginning to middle to end. They went, they saw, they knelt, they offered. It's the sequence of that action and the model that it invites us to follow. Go, see, kneel, offer. It's the suggestion that the wisdom of the wise men is found at least partly in that way of being in the world. Go, see, kneel, offer, and then leave, but by another way. A few weeks ago, a member of our own fold had an experience that he later shared on social media and it is with his permission that I share this with all of you now. AJ Northrup was on his way home one evening when he dropped by the Farmers International Market on Winchester Road. 
It wasn't that late, but it was already dark at 7 o'clock on December 20th, and the parking lot was nearly empty. When he finished up his shopping and climbed into his car, two men approached him. One was Asian and the other was Hispanic. And A.J. rolled down his window to inquire. And the men, both in apparently broken English, attempted to communicate with him, eventually handing A.J. a small card and inviting him to church. A.J. told him that actually he had just come from his church, this church, but they continued to struggle finding understanding. But then one of the men asked A.J. to pray, a clear word, a clear invitation, and A.J. turned off the engine and got out of his car to join the men on the outside. And they took each other's hands and they prayed in three different languages, finding their way, as A.J. says, as if on autopilot, to a unison, amen. Amen. So be it. Reflecting on this experience the very next day, A.J. couldn't settle on words to describe it. What he knew was that it was sacred and that it communicated something about the universality of God's love. Those languages, all in their particularity, translated one truth. God's love is for everyone. This might not be where AJ has found meaning, but when I back up and I look at that picture from a distance, I see the more than a meal worship service that AJ had led just prior to that trip to the farmer's market. I see someone who set out earlier that day because there was something that has compelled him to set out to this place every Thursday afternoon for years. And I see someone who sees Jesus in the tired, in the poor, and in the hurting who come forward to receive communion every week in this place. I see someone who was ripe for encounter, taking a cue from those magi, setting out, then seeing, then kneeling, and then offering. The magi teach us something about faithfulness. If we dare to hear, they certainly challenge any exclusive claim any of us make on God. In this story, we are confronted with people of faith, who use scripture for ill, and people of unknown faith who use a revelation in nature for good. And so in this inaugural Christian story about how God reveals God's very self, we, the faithful, are reminded that God communicates in many a way and that we aren't the owners of this story. The message is universal, and so is the telling and receiving of it. Of course, what God communicates in this story isn't simply existential. Our Reformed 
forefather John Calvin described faith as a belief not merely in God's existence, but a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence or good will toward us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Revealed to our minds. In this story, which is all about normal life, again, the across the gallery view, all about an authoritarian government and wandering foreigners and petrified mothers and unimaginative faithful people, in this story, which is up close about all of those things, there is another story unfolding piece by piece by piece. They set out, they saw, they kneeled, they offered gifts to the child whose vulnerability, whose weakness, whose beauty revealed something that we didn't yet know about God. For we who have eyes to see and ears to hear, the revelation here isn't God the idea or God the supernatural or God the distant thing over there yonder, but God incarnate, God present in the particularity of this one child who from the very beginning would be both the answer to our deepest longing and the victim of our worst inclinations. What was the epiphany? In a world where strangers are demonized and children are abused and people are afraid, God is present, quiet, constant, unstoppable despite all evidence to the contrary. God is present in the radically dependent, in the one who is forced to flee, in the poor, in the one who will speak truth to power, in the one who will make abundant room at the table, in the one who will absorb the worst of what we do to each other, in the one whose birth, life, death, and resurrection is a revelation of who God is and how God acts in our world. The story of those stargazers who set out to find Jesus and knelt in his presence is a story about how God finds us. And it's a story about God not leaving us where God finds us, just as the Magi went home, but by another way. AJ shared with me that he left that encounter in the dark parking lot with the conviction that it meant something, something that would go beyond that moment. And that now his task was discerning what that something is. So friends, on this morning when we celebrate Epiphany, when we find ourselves in the shadow of Christmas and barreling not only into a new year but a new decade, and as you prepare to meet at Christ's table, 
where you will receive fuel for whatever journey you are on this morning, I invite you to join our AJ and the Magi and consider leaving by another way. And as you leave, perhaps by another way, consider taking one of these stars with you as a guide. Just as the children received a star from Ms. Marjorie earlier in the service, you all will receive your very own stars as you exit this place today. So thoughtfully and prayerfully and in conversation with each other, I hope, our invitation is that you will uncover what this word means for you and what it means for our life together as we travel through another year. Thanks be to God. Amen.